Welcome to True Crime on Easy Street. We are live here from Easy Street Restaurant Bar and Performance Hall. I'm Katie Givens, and I am not a lawyer. I'm Kelly Turner, and I'm not a doctor. I am Scott Wright, and I am a mediocre journalist. And this week, we're going to be doing something a little different. We are all big true crime fans, which is, you know, what led us to start this podcast. That just shocked our whole audience. I know. Like, I mean, what? what? <laughs> we're shaking things up. Or at least Kelly and I were, and Scott didn't know he was yeah, until we, we drug him, yeah. kicking and screaming. Screaming. But I'm glad to be here now. Well, it turns out he really was a true crime fan because we all talk about what we like to listen to and read and watch on TV. And he's watched a lot of true yep. crime. A lot of similarities on that list between the three of us, it turns out. He didn't really understand that that was a whole category of things I that just people watched what I liked. out there. Yeah. yeah. So this week we're going to be talking about some true crime documentaries that we're all into. We've each picked one to kind of summarize and give a little background on and do we want to tell the story about how we tried to do this <clears throat> at the live show last yeah. Wednesday and it was pouring down rain and there's a metal roof at easy street and nobody in the audience could hear what we were doing or saying. And we're going to work on that before our next. What, what I love most is that they just let us go on for like yeah. an hour. Yeah. Like it was the longest show we'd ever done. We ran, we thought we were killing it. Oh man, we were so proud of ourselves and they waited until it was over. <laughs> we climbed out <laughs> off the stage and Shane held his hands <laughs> over his face and said, it sounded like this. <laughs> we sounded so, like the, Charlie teacher. Brown's yeah, teacher for an hour and eight minutes. Appreciate it, Shane. Yeah, thanks. Asshole. So, yay. Um, so, what we're going to do is we're going to bring that to you um, today mm-hmm. on this episode. And uh, Katie's going to go first, and I'm going to go second, and Kelly's going to bring up the rear. Sure. I sure. Like bringing up the rear. Sounds good. <laughs> Caboose. <laughs> Before yeah. we get into that, we're going to do something we haven't really done yet, we've realized, is talk a little bit about ourselves and why we say the things that we do, why we've- Why I swear sh- so much? Is that what you mean? Yes. Well, people are complaining. No, they're not. <laughs> and they're not. Where, we, where we've come from, why we're doing this, why we each have our own parts in this. So I am the not a lawyer portion of this mm-hmm. because I am not a lawyer. I do- And we were looking for not a lawyer. Also, we were. We were. I said- and I was like, Katie's I not a lawyer. Let's I need, ask her. Who's no, not, really. not a lawayer? Hmm. <laughs> yeah, Katie you started is. This. Short, short yeah, list. Yeah, but I've also heard Katie, and I, I've never said this, so this is the first time I'm saying this live. Mm. Okay, here we are. All right. We're recording a podcast. But I, I've also been told that Katie is the hot one. Of the three. Wait, what? <laughs> I am pissed. If we Who do a, if we do a true crime on Easy Street calendar, yeah. it'll consist all of Katie. She, she is January through December. Well, on that in calendar. December, it might be me with some Christmas cookies or something <laughs> like you know the mom. I don't know. Here's Unless that's Christmas just cookies. my husband saying that. I don't know where that could come from. But <laughs> but no, I I do work in an attorney's office. My husband. Shane that we reference sometimes is an attorney. I do real estate closings here at the attorney's office. I have a degree in political science and economics from Jacksonville State University. I was going to go to law school and then I got out of college, had to wait a semester to go to law school because of how timing worked. I graduated in August and you don't have enough time to get in for fall semester and was waiting around kind of deal. And then in the meantime, I began working and decided that I would rather not go into $100,000 worth of debt if I didn't have to. So I began a career and never looked back. You saved yourself a hundred grand. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I didn't want to 
actually practiced small town law, got married and realized that what my husband does every day does not interest me at all. But I am very interested in true crime. So that's why I do the trial portions because I did a little that's that That's why the school. hottie yeah. is in that seat over there. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, my name is Scott Wright and I am a 1993 graduate of the University of Alabama. I got a, I got an advertising degree from the University of Alabama a long time ago. Nothing that I learned applies to how advertising works in the world today. I learned how to make print ads and, and place uh, magazine ads and, and television production and a lot of things that I never ended up using because I ended up being the editor of one or another of the local newspapers here in Cherokee County in lovely Northeast Alabama for the last 25 years. And I, I'm at the age, I'm 51 years old now, and I'm starting to realize that I learned a bunch of stuff that I can't really, that doesn't exist anymore. I mean, again, I am the editor of a local newspaper. A lot of people don't pick up newspapers anymore, and Kelly Turner is one of them, and I'm pissed about that. She admitted it a few minutes ago. I did. But a lot of people don't read newspapers anymore. We still have a, a, a fairly good subscription base. We're in a retirement community. So there are a lot of uh, older folks here, uh, not that much older than me anymore, it turns out, but they still like to hold the newspaper in their hand in addition to getting it other ways. Um, but I love my job and I'm glad to have it. And I'm fortunate that I'm one of the few newspaper editors still around. And you guys kind of had to not drag me into this, but I think you guys already had this show sort of uh, fleshed out pretty well. And you wanted somebody who liked to read and do research and mediocre journalist that I am. I still know how to do that. So I'm glad to be here and be part of this team. And I can't wait to see where this thing takes us. I'm excited. Well, Every Scott, week. over two years ago, I approached you at the local pub here. The watering hole? Yeah. The was I, was hole. I sitting at the bar? Yeah, you what, were. Was it after five o'clock? We're walking around because it you was. don't sit much. No, you do kind of pace, pace and walk around. That is and true. You're friendly. You're yeah. a very friendly guy. So I said, Scott, mm-hmm. um, are you interested in true crime possibly? And you said, no. And you kept walking. <laughs> <laughs> so I waited a year. All right. And then I- um, And I got Netflix and changed my mind. And I asked you again. And you said, sort of, yeah, I guess. And uh, just so happens there was Shane. And he said, you know who's interested in true crime podcasting? Mm-hmm. My wife. Yeah. He said, Is that in how fact, they all came together? We're gonna call, he said, we're going to call her right now. And she's going to have to stop a podcast to pick up the phone and talk to me. And she was listening to at the time yeah, is the just, implication. And she okay. was. It, exactly what happened. I was getting ready to meet y'all at the pub and uh, I was listening to a true crime podcast while I did it, which is what yeah. I do every day. And then we uh, we discussed it and uh, Shane, you guys were building Easy Street. Yes. And Shane said, we want you there. We want you to do a live show. We want you to... Because we knew there was going to be a big stage and a bunch yeah. of sound equipment that works unless yeah. there's a pouring down rainstorm. So he, we got uh, the team and the uh, sponsor in the same day. Wow. I wish I remembered what I had for breakfast this morning <laughs> and you guys remember what happened a year ago. Stop it. Is this yeah. an intervention? Yeah. Well, so I say that I'm not a doctor. Okay, well, I'm not. I'm not a doctor. Um, I went to Auburn University and I graduated in 2001 with a degree. I had a major and a minor. I had a degree, a, it's a BA 
in psychology and a minor in criminology. And you can't do anything with either one of those unless you go on to school. So I went to... I feel that. Yeah. (laughs) I got my (laughs) master's at uh, Jacksonville State University. And I was not going to go to Jacksonville State University, not because I had anything against Jacksonville, but I was going to move out of the state. I was looking at colleges all over the place to go get my master's. I was, you know, free as a bird. Right. That kind of thing. You know, I I think I know how this ends. And then my roommate, who I've been rooming with for four years, said, you know, there is this guy that uh, is the same age as my brother. And I really think you two would would hit it off. Um, Would you like to go? You want me to set it up. She's wanting to, you know, play matchmaker. And I said, I do not want to do this. Absolutely not. Because I, I had about two weeks before then, I had gone on a blind date. And the guy bit me. Oh, no. I'm not even going to ask where. No. Just keep keep going. I had the beer poured all over me. Okay. The guy bit me. I ended up slapping him. It was a terrible date. And so then she's wanting to fix me up on a blind date. And I'm thinking, well, it's got to get better, right? But then I was also afraid. So I said, no, but she did it anyway. And uh, so there you go. Long story short, I met KT, who's now my husband. I did not know the story of how you two met. So she called a friend of ours, Hubie Latham. Yes. And then Hubie called KT. And I was getting ready to take the um the graduate exam examination to go into graduate school right and hubie got the test mix up and told him i was getting ready to take my ged (laughs) (laughs) oh you're taking the gre i was taking the gre just the kind of mistake our friend hubie would make and uh and kt thank goodness didn't catch that and so (laughs) (laughs) maybe he needs to go get his ged (laughs) so he called me in Auburn, and uh, we talked on the phone, and there you go. So there it is. So, but then I went to Jacksonville State University because it's local, and I got a master's degree in psychology again. So you know you can actually do a little something with that. And then I my focus was on substances of abuse, um, a lot of the the neurology of that. So I had a lot of classes on how they work in the brain, how all of that works. Um, and uh, so yeah, here we are. And well, and you found <clears throat> plenty of ways to apply your knowledge to this podcast. I mean, and we all have, I mean, Katie focuses on the legal aspect and, Mm -hmm. and I, I dig and do research and and you do your own research, but then you understand the, uh, the, what the psychology, I guess. Yeah. The human condition is very fascinating to me. And so you're never going to fully understand someone. And I said this in the Summerford case and back in episode two, um, you're never going to fully understand someone if you don't approach them with humility and, and, you know, talking with them, listening to them, getting to know them. Um, I promise when I'm when I'm in real life, I don't butt in and talk so much when someone's right. <laughs> when I'm trying to get to know somebody. <laughs> but uh yeah, so that's that's my background as well. And uh I'm still I'm still married to KT and and still happily married and so yeah. There you seem like that's a normal it. logical human being and yet still married to KT. <laughs> no, no. I don't get it. And I, it, what's so funny is I know you throw out all these zingers and he just doesn't listen. I know I was about to he, say KT if, doesn't, listen, he doesn't listen. If he ever takes an across the country road trip and goes, you know what, screw it. I'm just going to listen to all these. He will call me somewhere this side of Dallas and go, hey, asshole, drop it. Yeah. Now, he's been to a couple of live shows. Um, yeah, but he didn't pay attention. I looked over. I mean, really not. He was talking to somebody. That's okay. I, I mean, we are we are truly opposites attract, so that's okay with me. That's Definitely it's what true. makes us work. We have our own things, and I love that. So okay. that's it. That's that's me. So As long as you've talked yourself into it, that's all. Yeah, I have, yeah every all day, right. convincing myself. But I had this vision 
Um, and I approached both of you and I'm so glad that you said yes, because I, I have been listening to true crime podcasts since 2016. Okay. I have a long commute when I go into my regular job, an hour one way. And so I discovered podcasts and I started listening to them and just became hooked. And so now here we are and I'm so excited. Now here we are all three at the bottom of the rabbit hole you've dragged us down. (laughs) Thanks, Kelly. I know I've got several recommendations from you. You were, you gave me some of my first recommendations on True Crime Podcast. So, oh man. It's it's a it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. I was I was talking to some people this weekend. It's a lot of people like it, and some people think, okay, I can listen to it. Some people say I want to see it, mm-hmm. and so that is what sparked today's episode. There are some things that we have seen that we want to nice discuss with you. Hey, do well you see done. what I did there? Yeah, uh, I saw it. Such a pro now. So we're going to talk <laughs> about some documentaries that we've watched. So if you want to see it with your own eyes, here are some good recommendations. Yeah. I'm going to start with a pretty popular one. That is on Netflix that several people have seen. It's a little older. It was released in 2015, uh, Making a Murderer. It follows the story of two men accused of a crime that they may not have committed due to popular theory. It was pitched originally to PBS and HBO. Neither one of them decided to pick it up. Netflix picked it up. And like I said, it was released in 2015. 15. And Netflix wasn't really into the, I mean, that was kind of their first foray into the true crime genre, right? But, and, it, and it put them on the map. I mean, after that, they realized, holy cow, everybody loved making a murderer. We've got to follow up with some really good stuff. And they have in the years that have proceeded. But that was their first shot at it. Yeah, it went straight to the top of the Netflix charts. Yes. So it's, it takes place in Manitowoc County, Wisconsin. Follows a man named Stephen Avery. And then later on, his nephew, Brendan Dassey. The show begins with Stephen Avery getting out of prison. He spent 18 years in prison for a crime he did not commit. The crime was a sexual assault and attempted murder of a woman named Penny Bernstein. Penny was attacked while running on July 29th, 1985 at around 3.50 p.m. She was forced into a wooded area and sexually assaulted. She went to report the crime and they gave her a photo lineup of nine different men and she picked Stephen Avery out of that lineup. Stephen Avery presented 16 different alibi witnesses for this crime. 16. 16. One of which included the clerk of a local store, like kind of like a hardware store. He was there to buy paint. And he, his wife, and their five children were in the store buying paint. The clerk remembers seeing him. He had a receipt, and the time on the receipt was 5.13 p.m. So in order for him to have committed this crime at 3.50, he would have had to commit the crime take a mile walk to the nearest parking area to get in his car, drive home, load up his family, and drive 45 minutes from his home to the store in just over an hour. That's cutting it pretty close. Yeah. It is borderline impossible, but they decided, a jury decided in 1985 that it was indeed possible. So on December 14th, 1985, he is convicted and sentenced to 32 years in prison. He appealed many times. He lost several appeals. In April 2002, attorneys for the Wisconsin Innocence Project obtained a court order for DNA testing of 13 hairs recovered from uh, Ms. Bernstein at the time of the attack, which DNA testing wasn't sufficient in 1985 to test those hairs at the time. But as protocol was back then, they would collect more evidence than they were able to test because they had faith that this DNA testing would evolve with time, which it has. And it, this is seen, we've seen this in several cases yeah. where 
you know, blood and hair and fingerprints and things were stored and later retested. But you can't, I mean, a police force can't just decide, oh, I'm going to just go retest this. They have to have a court order to do so. So the Wisconsin Innocent Project obtained a court order for the DNA testing of those hairs and they uh, put it against the FBI DNA database at the time and those hairs linked to a guy named Gregory Allen who was a convicted felon who actually bore a really striking resemblance to Stephen Avery. He was currently serving a 60-year prison term for another sexual assault that unfortunately took place after the Bernstein attack. So if he could have been convicted of the Bernstein attack, he wouldn't have went on to commit more crimes that led him in prison. But like I said, out of a photo lineup, she's attacked in the woods. No one is blaming the victim in this sure. that for you know picking the wrong guy. They, that was all she had to go on was this photo lineup. And that was basically what he got convicted on because there was no other evidence to place him there. It was just... So the only thing he was convicted on was the victims... Picked him out of a Picking him out of a line. Mm-hmm. And he was a... It seemed like he didn't have a very good defense attorney. I don't know. He I didn't. didn't. I don't, no, he, I mean, of course he didn't. Not, yeah. not with what was going on in the time. And he was a part of a family that the town knew that was, you know... That family, they were the Averys. They owned a junkyard and they were looked down upon in town. And Nobody they, blinked twice when... No, but Stephen Avery going to prison? Sure. He, was right. gonna, he probably was going to end up He's there sooner or later. Sure. This is what got him Yeah, because I think there was a, a lot of things that he did. He, he wasn't popular. I mean, I, I think right. he was notorious for having a temper and... Notorious is a good word, yes. Yeah, kind of having a, you know, a, a bad side kind of, right. you know... He was released from prison in 2003 after this wrongful conviction. And he filed a lawsuit, of course, like anybody would. A $36 million lawsuit against Manitowoc County. This suit was still pending when he was rearrested and charged in 2005 for murder, this time, of a woman named Teresa Halbach. He was convicted of this crime in 2007, along with his nephew, Brendan Dassey, who was accused and convicted as an accessory in the murder. And then that's where this story really takes. Yeah, and one of the most interesting parts, and I saw this when it was brand new in 2015, and I don't want to step on Katie's story, but I remember one of the parts of the documentary that was most frustrating to me was the way that the nephew, nephew, Mm -hmm. Dassey. Brendan, yeah, Brendan Dassey. The way that he was handled, because he might have been mentally deficient in some way, and he, he spent a lot of time in an interrogation room being led on, and it was all on video. Yes. The way he was being led down this path of what the cops, he eventually told the cops exactly what they wanted to hear. Mm -hmm. He should have been screaming, I want a lawyer, but he didn't know to do that. He didn't know to do that, no. And that is a a hard part of this documentary to watch. Now, regardless of your feelings towards either party or what you think they may or may not have done, it is hard to watch police treat people like that. And to know that that's how the legal system works sometimes, Mm -hmm. you know, they take it, you know, a certain, not, not all law enforcement officers, obviously not no, all, no. you know, but there is lots of cases of, you know, coercion and not an indictment of any law enforcement, but if you see a, I don't want to say an easy way, but if you see a way that looks obvious, Hey, maybe this, the case could have happened this way. If we can get this guy to admit that he did it, that's one less thing we have to worry about when we get to the office in the morning. And I, 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 I don't mean to seem callous when I say that, no, or that no, the, no. the police are uncaring, but Hey, one of your jobs is to solve crimes. Well, sometimes, unfortunately, they have a theory and they want to make it fit. Yeah, they get the tunnel theory. vision. And That's human of nature, yeah. Going sure, with the, I agree. Yeah, it, it's everybody 
is guilty of this, but they they want to make that fit. And his attorney, ooh, that was hard to watch too. Yes. Um, he has since had several attorneys, very high dollar attorneys, come to his defense. He is currently being defended by another woman. There is a season two of Making a Murderer that goes on with this trial. So I would highly recommend watching if you are into criminal cases, into trials. That That's... Yeah, you know, my that's, portion. That's, of, yeah, that's your thing. That is the main focus of this documentary, and it people have different feelings on it. They some believe he's innocent, some believe he's guilty. You can make your own judgments. Well, on there, that. there are a lot of details in the case that you will see if you watch it. That I don't want to say they are circumstantial, but there's there's some evidence that turns up later that wasn't there to begin with. There's there's just there's a lot of there are a lot of gaps in the storyline and I don't remember all of the details, but I just remember watching it and just not feeling, feeling like I needed a shower Yeah, when it was over because I wasn't sure that everything, I wouldn't have wanted that to be me and end up in the same place that those guys did when it looked like there was plenty of evidence to keep me from ending up. Mm-hmm. It is hard to watch in times and it's sometimes yeah. you want to scream at the TV and then sometimes you're like, Oh, I mean, uh, yeah, maybe. Yeah. There's there. You just have to make up your mind. There's doubt. Yep. And that's it. and a well done documentary. I think leaves that sense. It in, is well done. Yeah, I uh, I agree. I, I think that's what they want you to do is scratch your head and go, wait a minute, mm-hmm. I better watch that again. Yep. So you can watch to form your own opinions, and I'll turn it over to Scott for his story. So the documentary that I picked to watch is a four part series that is available on Netflix as well. It's called This Is a Robbery, the world's greatest art heist. It's from 2021. Six and a half stars out of 10 is the IMDb rating. Uh, it's a four-part series, each part about an hour long. The, the the documentary series, and I love this. I've watched it twice already, and I could go back and watch it again tonight. If I can't find anything else, if I get tired of watching my old World War II in color documentaries, I may go back and start this again because I love this story. It happens on March the 18th, 1990 which is St. Patrick's Day weekend in Boston. And it's important to understand that on in Boston, their St. Patrick's Day parade takes place on Sunday instead of what you would think would probably be a Saturday parade. That is when the crime takes place. And here's the crime. Two men dressed as Boston police officers buzz themselves into the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston, which I didn't even know existed until I watched this documentary. I'm a huge fan of travel. I've been to Boston several times in my life. I've never heard of this museum. The first episode basically tells you the story about how the museum came to be. And I'll get to that in a second. So the guards, they're night guards, night watchmen. They buzz these cops in because why wouldn't they? They're two Boston police officers or appear to be. And there's the first hook. They let them in. And one of the cops says, gentlemen, this is a robbery. And that is how the the documentary gets its its title. So they tie up the two guards, the two night watchmen. They spend the next 81 minutes in the museum looting it of, are you sitting down? Half a billion dollars worth of valuable, priceless art. Billion with a B. With a B. Three Rembrandts, including the only seascape he ever painted. Uh, a Vermeer, a Manet, uh, a Ming vase, uh, a, a, a golden eagle that once sat atop a flagpole that Napoleon carried into battle. 13 pieces altogether. Three Rembrandts, among them the self-portrait. 
Uh, and briefly, the story of the Isabella Stewart Gardening Museum is this. This was a woman who was a young woman back in the mid-1800s. When her father died, he left her several million dollars, and she'd always wanted to have an art collection. So she began traveling to Europe, buying up art. And when she got enough, when she got more than she could place in her house, she and her husband decided they were going to buy a piece of swampland in Boston, close to, it's called the Fins, and it's a park with a little walkway. And Fenway Park, where the Boston Red Sox play, got its name from the same area of town, I, I figured out. So they buy this piece of uh, swampland. They build a four-story tall replica of a Venetian palace. You'd have to see, guys, if you don't watch any other part of this documentary, watch the first episode because the building itself is amazing. It's, it's, it's fantastic. She spent the rest of her life collecting this artwork and putting it into this museum. When the building itself was finished and she had her thumb in every single piece of the, art, or the architecture of this building, she continued to go to Europe and buy the appropriate pieces of furniture to go, like the Dutch room, all of the Dutch artists are in the Dutch room, and there's nothing in there except Dutch furniture and Dutch uh, drapes, things that were purchased from Holland. Uh, the French room, the same way, and I'm, I'm forgetting exactly what the rooms are, but she spent the rest of her life doing it. In her will, when she died, she said, if anybody ever touches anything in this museum, shut it all down, sell all the artwork, and give the money to Harvard University. Otherwise, I want it to stay open forever. To this day, the 13 empty frames, well, the not 13 frames, the, the empty frames from the artwork that was brutally cut out of these frames at the time the, the, the heist took place, they are hanging on the wall blank because they did not want to risk violating her will by moving anything permanently. So they put the empty frames back on the wall. They're hanging there today. Waiting for this unsolved crime. There's another hook. 30 years later, never been solved. <clears throat> As the oh, and there's a uh, there's initially there was a five million dollar reward for anything that would lead to the recovery of these thirteen pieces of art. In 2017, it was bumped up to ten million. Um, and, and the one painting that I want to talk about, one of the Rembrandts, it was the only known seascape he ever painted, painted in 1633. It tells the story of Mark chapter four verses 36 through 41, and I've seen a picture of it. I never have seen it in person, obviously. But I want this crime solved because one day I want to go to the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum and look at this four by five foot painting, almost as big as your refrigerator, hanging on the wall. I want to see it with my eyes because it tells the story of Mark 4, 36 through 41, which is when Jesus is on the, in a boat preaching to a mass of people in the Sea of Galilee. A storm washes up. The apostles are on the boat trying to wrestle the sail down and keep from overturning. And Jesus is asleep on a pillow in the back of the of the boat. And they wake him up and say, Jesus, please help us. We're all going to drown. And he says, have ye no faith? And he snaps his fingers or whatever Jesus did. And the storm abated and the wind died down. And it, the apostles looked at each other and said, oh my God, if he can control the weather, surely we should follow this man. And I always think of my friend, Kevin Green and his family who are people of faith. And uh, Kevin and I talk about religion sometimes and, and uh, and other things, politics. We we often disagree about things, but we always end the conversation cordially. Kevin's one of my favorite people in the world to talk about anything with because he's got common sense and he's logical. And for some reason, he thinks that I do too. And so we usually end up with a decent conversation. Everybody's trying to hide a grin or a laugh at this point. And I don't blame you. Thanks, Kelly. You held it together <laughs> as long as you could. 
Anyway, the documentary series itself consists of reenactments. There are interviews with Boston area journalists who've covered the story for the last 30 years. That's a lot of it. And I love, I always love the journalistic angle of any story. If there, if there are journalists involved, unfortunately, we're watching things about things that happened in the 80s and 90s and 50s and 40s and 60s and 70s a lot of the time. So it was still when newspapers were prominently, the, the, they got the lead. They were the most important uh, media covering things. And I always like it when the newspapers get involved. A lot of these guys have since retired. So they talked to investigators in the series. And the story really of the whole thing is how has this crime gone unsolved for the last 30 years? And I'm, I'm wrapping this, this up, but there, there are points in the story where the Boston mob gets involved. Uh, and there's the, there's the Irish mob in Boston at the time. And there's the Italian mafia. They're all operating in Boston at the time. Not so much anymore. The FBI has come in in the preceding decades. And a lot of the reason there was so much heat from the FBI was because at this time, mobsters would steal art. There was, a, there was, there was a, an entire, what's the word I'm looking for? There was a syndicate that dealt almost exclusively in art crimes. And one of the reasons that they preyed on the art community, the security's not very good a lot of times. It's very valuable. It's just hanging on the wall. And the FBI would let your compatriots or maybe even yourself, they let you out of jail sometimes or cut your sentence in half. We want this painting back. It's worth $20 million. Tell us where it is and we'll cut your 10-year sentence to four years. So, And, it, and art theft is not a violent crime. Yeah. So. So, you know, you got 10, 15 years, but I mean, they right. would use, in one of the uh, reviews that I read, and this is a quote from the guy who wrote a review of this series on Robert, RogerEbert.com, quote, the entertainment value of Boston mob members stealing a Rembrandt to use as criminal collateral is undeniable. And it really is. I mean, that's one of the most fascinating aspects of the case to me. People turn up dead with their heads chopped off in the trunk of their own car parked under a highway overpass. For months after they've gone missing, that was a pretty gruesome crime scene. I was, uh, we were all told. Anyway, it's a four-part series. It's fascinating. Like I said, I could watch it again tomorrow. Uh, if you want to watch something, even if you're not really a true crime person, it's still a very interesting tale of, if you like mob, if you like art. If you're not a true crime person, I don't know why you've made it this far, but. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But even if you're new to it and you're trying and you want to try something new, I would recommend to start with this one because like I said, I've seen it twice. I'm going to watch it again. I'm done. Kelly, it's your turn. Bring us home. To, okay. I've seen Making a Murder. Um, I enjoyed it. And I'm going to watch that one because right. I've, I, now that you've talked about it, I want to I want to see it. It's really good. Okay. I'm excited. I watched um, a documentary that's on Amazon Prime and it's called Lorena. And yes, it is that Lorena. We're talking about Lorena Bobbitt and the Bobbits. And everybody, you know, you think you know that story and you think you know everything about it. And I remember watching the Lorena Bobbitt trial when I was in high school. I remember watching it, coming in from high school, watching it on court TV. Court, when court every TV was big, yeah. day. I was so invested in this and uh, everybody picked a side, you know, and I was, from mm-hmm. the beginning, I was a Lorena fan. Um, n- nothing against men whatsoever, but I was, and but so a little against him, <laughs> a little bit of him, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, <clears throat> this documentary, there are four episodes. Each episode is about an hour long, and it's one of the major producers. There's several producers, but one of the more recognizable names was Jordan Peele. You guys know 
Oh yeah. Okay. He he'll always be one half of Key and Peel to yes, me. Yes, yeah, so I love he's that. he's since gone on to become a very successful director. Yes, and he's there. Like I said, there are several other um, executive producers, but he is one of those, and mm-hmm. that's the name I recognized. Um, so again, it's on Amazon Prime. So if you have a subscription to that, you can you can watch it um, with no additional charges. Um, <clears throat> so it it takes us to Manassas, Virginia, and it takes us back to the night of the incident in 1993. Um, they interview Lorena, they interview John, they interview neighbors, they interview some of John's, you know, friends, quote, buddies. They uh, interview the prosecutor, John's attorney. So anyways, there's, there's a lot of They rehash the entire thing from the night it happened all the way through the media coverage and the trial. That's what you're saying. Yes. And and then the, the aftermath Okay. Everything that happened afterwards. In fact, they focus a lot on the aftermath and the implications that this case had um, in changing policy and uh, where a good chunk of federal money went. Um, before this happened, there was no domestic violence shelter for women, even though um, we had animal shelters in this country over 100 years before we had our first uh, women's shelter, battered women's shelter. Sexual violence and and domestic assault wasn't really... And in fact, in Virginia, the way the law was at the time, I don't know what the law still is in Virginia to this day, but uh, during this time, you had to be separated from your spouse for two years before you could claim rape. Wow. And there also had, had to be some permanent physical damage and they had to uh oh there's permanent physical damage in this story but not the kind you're talking about there is permanent physical damage but anyway so that is um a lot of people go through this lorena bobbitt case and they say why didn't she leave why didn't she get out and um the truth of the matter is john was not working she was the only one working she was paying the bills it was her place it was her apartment right and two days before the incident happened, the incident where, for those of you who don't know, Lorena Bobbitt, in the middle of the night, cut off her husband's penis, and we will hash that out. Okay. So be- two days before the incident, that's the incident we're talking about, uh, she tried to file a protective order. So this happened on a Wednesday. It happened on Wednesday, June the 23rd. On Monday, June the 21st, she went and tried to file a protective order. In this order, she describes choking, hitting, forcing sex, kicking in the stomach. All of these things are are circled Mm -hmm. in the protective order. The questions are, do you still live in the home? Yes. Are you afraid? Yes. All of those, that's what's on the protective order. Okay. Okay. So the judge says, honey, can you come back? Uh, in about 24 hours. My secretary's not here. Sounds like an old white guy. Uh, and um, can you come back uh, uh, tomorrow or maybe Wednesday and we'll finish this because my secretary's out. Mm-hmm. So probably, we don't, probably we don't want her to come back on Wednesday because the first day his secretary's back in the office. She's going to have to catch up on all of his stuff. Yeah, so, yeah. so there's nobody. Yeah. First of all, there's nobody in this office to back up. The secretary with a protective order that contains all of these things. And I'm afraid to go home, by the way. Honey, can you just go on back? Go on home tonight. It'll be fine. Yeah. And uh, and just come back. 
So again, I'm probably not being fair to uh, the I'm, judge. I'm I don't with, know. I'm with but, you 100. I mean, without knowing all the facts either, but it sounds like you know. Check the documentary out and see what you think. You'll, okay. you'll see. Oh, it. I've started it. I've I watched you'll the first 40 minutes of the first yeah. episode, and then I got distracted with the. Uh, I yeah. started doing research for one of yeah. our other podcasts, but I would. And in 1993, when this happened, over 2,000 women were killed by their intimate partners. There was nationwide. No, nationwide. There was no hotline to call. There was no funding for shelters. The battered woman syndrome, remember that? Back from back to episode one, battered woman syndrome, mm-hmm. was just beginning. Mm-hmm. All that, you know, was right. just starting. Uh, there were lots of cases that tried to use this on into the end of the 90s and on past that. And um, most of these women, they're, when they're killed, they're in the process of leaving their partner or it, it's been six months since they, within the first six months after leaving their partner. So they try to get out and they get followed. First of all, they have nowhere to go. And in Lorena's case, she's paying the bills. She's the only one with a job. Okay. She's trying to file a protective order. She's in the process of packing her things, leaving a little bit at a time. The neighbors, they interview the neighbors. She had stored some things at their home, uh, their apartment. They didn't know why she kept going back and sleeping there, but she did. So on this particular evening on we're late in late Tuesday night, early hours, Wednesday morning. So John Bobbitt goes out drinking with a friend that's staying there. They, um, according to John, they're not drunk. They don't have a whole lot to drink. So she's paying for the place. Yeah. He goes out drinking with his buddy and his buddy comes over and crashes on the couch. His buddy's crashing on the couch. Yeah. Okay. What an asshole. So fun. So according to John, they're not that drunk. They only have a couple of beers and, you know, nothing like that. Then, then, you know, immediately cut cut to the friend and he's like, we were drunk. Uh, I drove. We should, I shouldn't have been driving. Gotcha. And so they were drunk. So he comes in. The, the fight ensues, the forced rape happens. This is when Lorena claims that there's, you know, he's, he's beating her, he's forcing her into sex, anal sex, mm-hmm. uh, all of these things. She snaps. She does not remember cutting off his penis, but she took a knife from the kitchen and she cut his penis off while he was asleep. Now, she leaves with his penis. Right. In her hand. In her hand. The friend who's on the couch, you know, John is telling the friend, you know, I got to, I'm going to need to go to the hospital. I mean, there's a lot of blood. There's, you know, thing. the friend who was staying with him, he's like, let me brush my teeth. Yeah. <laughs> I remember teeth. that. I got that far in the documentary <laughs> in the first episode. Teeth. Yeah. So they go to the hospital. And in the meantime, the next thing Lorena remembers, according to her testimony is she's driving in the car and she has a knife and she has his penis. And there's a 7-Eleven to her left out the window. She's driving along. And there's a grassy area to the right. So she hangs her arm out of the car, throws it over the car. I don't know why that was interesting to me that it went over the car. It went right. flying over the car and into the grassy area. <laughs> I'm sorry. But let me tell you this. I know, I know that I'm laughing, but John Bobbitt is on this podcast and he's making as many jokes as anybody That's else. True. Everybody's laughing except Lorraine is not laughing a whole lot. Yeah. It's very serious to her. Right. Um, she does crack up a couple of times, um, but everybody seems to have moved on from this, uh, so to speak. So, um, so then the first responders, they were who were very interesting to me. The first responders 
are beside themselves because they don't get this a lot. Okay. And so or, there's or ever. <laughs> there's a lot of rumors going around as to where it is. Where's the penis? Uh, one rumor was that she put it in the garbage disposal. Another rumor was that she swallowed it. And it's, you know, they finally, they have him on in one area of the hospital. And then she's in the other area of the hospital because she's claiming she's been raped. They're, they're you know, talking with her. And they sit down and they say, we have to know where it is. We can't put it back on without it. And they've called the microsurgeon. And that wasn't lost on me either because, you know, some men may say, I wouldn't need a microsurgeon. <laughs> yeah. uh, but the microsurgeon and a urologist, that's who's going to have to put, you know, Humpty Dumpty back together. So the microsurgeon <laughs> says, it's 2.30 in the morning. I'm not coming in if you don't find it. There's nothing for me to put back on. Right. The urologist can handle it. Why the hell didn't she tell anybody where it was? Why didn't she just throw up her arms and go, I don't know. Well, she, they finally get her to set, and she says, I, I threw it into the grassy area across from the 7-Eleven. So they go looking for it. And you got the chief of police, and he's you know looking for it. And he steps on it. And that's how he finds it. They've got dogs. They've got the fire chief. They've got the police. I mean, it's, it's, everybody's looking for the penis. Okay. We've got to find this penis. So he steps on it. And then finally he, nobody wants to touch it. And the, the fire chief is like, where is it? And so the, the chief of police is just standing there and he just, he points down to it. And they, and they later took a picture. I'm not touching it. It's right there. And he points and I to guess, it. Look, yeah, it's right there. There it is. Don't spoil it for me or anybody else. I've only seen part of the first episode. I just don't understand why the most important thing at that moment was to get that reattached. I mean, he could live without that. He's Well, Scott, that's because it's a penis. Yes, if it was. Okay, exactly, and, 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 right? That's exactly And why. they will say this. That's that exactly Someone why. brings this up in the documentary. All of the um, the mutilations that go on in Africa to young girls. Yeah. Uh, but one penis, we got to find That's it. That's what we I gotta mean. Why it. is that yeah. the most pressing issue? It is. We it have is got the to find most pressing this. issue. Yeah. Let him sit on the toilet and pee like a woman for the rest well, of his life. Well, that's what the, the urologist it. was going to, at the time, I, mean, I guess in their defense, they didn't know the whole story. Right. And okay, fair uh, until proven guilty. Yeah, fair and enough, the and the urologist said I was prepared to do that. That that was my job okay. was to make sure that he could pee. Mm-hmm. You know, he didn't I don't think he said it like that, but yeah. he said it in a very but professional yeah, I mean, you, technical you, you, you doctor have way. To, right. You have to urinate. Yes, you have to being. you have to pee. You have to mm-hmm. tinkle. So they get they get it <laughs> she and had they it and then she lost it. That's right. They um they get it and they <laughs> They ceremoniously carry it into the 7-Eleven because they realize we've got to get it on ice. And this is, you cannot make this up, guys. The truth is so much stranger than fiction. They put it in a hot dog bag full of ice and they get it to the hospital. Like the bag that you would put the hot dog that you buy at the 7-Eleven that's sitting there rotating oh, on yeah. the little... Sp- they got the ice from the 7-Eleven. They even interviewed the, the guy from the 7-Eleven and he's holding up a full bag of ice and he's like, I'm still waiting on my thank you from John Bobbitt for, you know, <laughs> saving his penis. Um, so anyways, they um, they go and they take it and they, and, and they reattach it successfully. 
And the doctors talk about it in the documentary and they go, they walk you through that. And probably show a couple <clears> of pictures. <throat> Didn't you tell me that? Oh, there's pictures. There's pictures. <laughs> and that's going to get, that's going to get people moving. Just it, knowing there's pictures, uh, graphic I, I photos. I want tightly yep. as possible, yep, yep. right? Graphic photos, guys. I'm just going to warn yeah, you. Yeah, the fact okay. that you're the one saying, why is that the most pressing issue at the moment? <laughs> well, you know, we talked about the, you know, all that's changed since. And maybe that's what it took because it's just this, this male mentality of, yeah. The most important thing is to get his and, dick back and, on his body. Well, and people today still say, you know, she should have got out. She should have got away. But I think this documentary did an excellent oh, job out. of showing how, how she was trying. And he kept saying, I'll follow you. I'll find mm-hmm. you. I'll, you know. And, um, and, and people who have dealt with domestic violence understand this. Mm-hmm. Right. They know that that is very real. The, I will find you. There's nowhere you can go. I know I'll people that you. that has happened to. Yeah, yeah. We, we probably all do. You'll never leave here with the kids. You'll, mm-hmm. you know, I'll take them from you. I'll, you know, all of that. And and it's not just men saying that to women. Women do the same thing. I mean, it's it's domestic violence is in every type of relationship, whether you have a male and a female, or two females or two males. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's there. It exists, and it's a form of manipulation. So anyway, so John, uh, they reattach it. And then he goes on trial for rape and is found not guilty. I'm just going to spoil that for you. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows that. He, he was found yeah. not guilty. His trial was not televised at all. It happened before her trial. And uh, it was not um, televised. And I never understood exactly. You know, you'd come in when I was home from college. Mom always had, in the mid-90s, always the TV. We would have to go watch football on Saturdays in the fall in another room because mom had it on court TV all the time. And I always, I guess every jurisdiction has its own rule about whether or had it back then about whether or not you could televise trials. Some trials, some big trials would be, and they would show them for hours and then they would cut to the, to the anchor man sitting behind the desk and they would give you the update that some right. court reporter in another jurisdiction had to run and call in and tell you what was going on because yeah. you couldn't broadcast that one. Well, his lawyer did an excellent job of keeping it from being televised. Okay, okay. So his lawyer was, was, you know, the force behind that. They could only look at a, sl- a certain uh, window of time, three days before the incident, two days after, to prove the rape mm-hmm. uh, and the assault. And there was not enough evidence. They spoke to jury members. Jury said, just, just wasn't enough. When it comes to her trial, now they can go back as far as they want to go. And her lawyer did that. Her lawyer did that. He did an excellent job. Okay. She had been to the emergency room many times. There were pictures where she had been beaten. Um, You know, this had happened before, the beating. Now, he's he first denies the beating. Um, then he kind of admits to it, but he's always denying the rape. And, and even today, the John Bobbitt that, that's interviewing today, he denies it. Um, John goes on to remarry and divorce again because she filed charges because he beat and raped her. Mm-hmm. He also uh, goes to work for the Bunny Ranch in uh, Las Vegas and uh, they get a restraining order because when he starts drinking, he becomes, guess what? A total a-hole. And, um, and for the uninitiated, the Bunny Ranch is a legal uh, prostitution. prostitution establishment yeah. north of Las Vegas. Yeah. 78 miles, I yes. believe. 
or so. And I'm kidding. I don't know I how mean, far Scott, away it is. I've yeah, when you there. were there, did you see John? I didn't see uh, him. But he, wor- he wor- <laughs> worked there and uh, ran off with one of the bunnies, and uh, she he ended up beating and raping her too. So this is a pattern with him. You can literally, you know, people say, um, well, if you just cut his penis off, he won't do it again. Turns out that's not true. Not true at all. So they put it back on, and uh, John goes into porn. He goes into porn, but first, before he goes into porn, he goes to stay on a ranch uh, to lay low because his lawyer is saying you should lay low. In a in a trial after, this is not for the Lorena trial. The, before the Lorena trial. Oh, okay. After his trial, before Lorena's trial, they say you need to go, okay. we're going to arrange for you to go here. Get you out of the news. Let everybody yep. forget about what you did or didn't do. Right. And and we're you're going to lay low. Right. And that, that was his instructions. And he's there not very long at the ranch and he gets kicked right in the crotch by a thousand pound bull. <laughs> That's so my the, favorite the part of the story. There is some justice in the world. Kicked in the crotch. So he decides that the ranch life is not for him. And he ends up going and, and then John Bobbitt, everybody knew John Bobbitt. He was on Howard Stern, I don't know how many times. Mm. Howard Stern had a telethon for him on New Year's Eve. Mm. And every time they would get more money, they had a giant penis meter and it would it would rise higher and higher the more money that he would get he became he entered a john bobbitt lookalike contest at a hooters i don't even know if he won but he, he's just all over the place he's in the media he's and it goes into it he's shows not you laying low all of that no he's not laying low and then her trial happens and i won't rehash all of that but it goes into her trial you see clips from her trial okay you see the 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 way that that, that it works out you you I think it's it's very um, worth the watching, and it changed the laws, and it and it may and women started saying, "Heck yeah, uh, we gotta we gotta scream! This is we're tired of this. We're done." There are probably a lot of women this. nationwide watching this trial on court television, rooting for her, like you said, you picked yep. a side, rooting for her, and hoping maybe for the love of God they will rule in her favor, and it will. It will help me to get out of the terrible situation that I'm in in yeah. some way. Uh, yeah, that yeah. you don't even know about yet. Right, you can't, correct. You can't guess. Correct, and so um, anyway, so they they are just it, it goes into how much they were hounded by the media. Um, everybody knew who they were. Mm-hmm. Everybody still knows who they are. Oh yeah, people know who the Bobbits are. Yeah, and um, so. This story, though, it it talks about Lorena in the aftermath and how she got her life together and how she helps and and volunteers and works in battered women's shelters. And she buys Christmas presents for the kids at the local shelters. And it it shows that about her. Her hair is is blonde now. You see the the good blonde do that she's got. Right. And uh, she's remarried with a child. And to this day, she still gets letters from John Bobbitt wanting her back. Really? Wanting her back. Emails, everything. Of course, he denies that. He says she reached out to him first, but then they cut to her on her at her kitchen table with piles and piles of letters. That he's All written her over the years. They read some excerpts from him. You know, he denies that he's ever assaulted any of these women or raped any of these women. But he's actually done time. He actually did time uh, where OJ did time. Did some time there. Yeah. I wonder if they ever shared a bread sandwich I don't uh, know. in the. Uh, I don't know. But so, so that's um, that. But in, I'm going to say one more thing and then I'll, I'll be done. He, while he's in the porno industry, he does a he does a porno and he gets taken for 
all of the money out of it by one of those sleazy <laughs> porno producers. Good. <laughs> but then he decides he's going to have an, an enhancement. He's going to go longer and wider. I hope he got gonorrhea. Well, um, I don't think that's that good. doctor. It was such a botched surgery mm. that that doctor no longer has a license to mm. practice. And the they did a um, he wishes he got gonorrhea. They actually yeah. did a they actually <laughs> did a porno about this surgery, and it was called Franken Penis. You can't make this up, guys. Nope. You can't make so this up. Do or don't Google that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, I, the the it is a very entertaining documentary and it's very enlightening. I am going to I watch the rest of it. I think they did a fair job. I, I don't think... It, you I, mean fair I've as been, in it was down the middle of the road? I think so. Okay. Uh, some people may watch and disagree with me. I mean, I, I am more on Lorena's side on, of this and I you know, came out saying that. Um, but I do think that it does a good job in showing both sides and it, it takes you back a little bit to some of John's childhood so that you can get a little bit of understanding of him. He just, you know, did not come from a great childhood. I know that doesn't excuse anything, right. but sometimes it's... But it is interesting to go back and see. You see. We, we, we like to do that on this show. Yeah, and it, it, it does kind of help you to... Uh, understand a little bit of maybe where he gets some of the violence that he resorts to. Uh, not that it's okay. Never right. excusing that ever, but just saying, you know, it, it, it sh- for every person saying this way, they have a person saying that way. So it's not, you know, just go Lorena, you know, it's, it's, it's yeah. show it, and pe- there are people well, in there well who then, still d- say he was wrong. He was absolutely wrong, but what she did, was wrong. She should not have done that. And I don't think anybody's arguing that. Mm-hmm. I think the argument is, does she actually remember doing it or does she not? And she claims she does not remember. Doing she it. woke up in the car. That she was, she snapped. That, that you know, I guess a, a piling it all together, the trying to get the protective order, trying to move out, and then this one last, that was just the, the last straw is kind of well, the way they put it. I think the goal of any documentary is to leave you scratching your head, or not scratching your head, but teetering on in the middle on the balance, trying to figure out which side you come down on, especially if it's a he said, she said kind of case. I think if the documentary is done properly, and it sounds like this one is, that that's the way you want when the credits roll at the end of episode number four, that's where you want to be, where you have to sit around and think about it for a minute. You're not, you're not sold on one side or the other. Anybody can convince you of one side or the other. A well-done documentary walks you right down the middle. And it invokes conversation. Yes. Yes. Like like we're having. Yeah. And I think Lorena does say she, you know, she's reading some of the letters that he's written her over the years. And she's like, you know, I cut his penis off. Leave me alone. And she kind of laughs. And that's one of the few moments where she kind of, she kind of laughs, but it, you can see that it's a very serious issue to her. She never took it any of this lightly. This was, this was tragic for her. This was a difficult time for her. And it was something that she had to get over. She had to to kind of crawl her way back. Yeah. Even though most of the, of the rest of the country didn't take it very seriously at the time. And hopefully that's changed a lot since then. And hopefully that documentary lays, uh, lays out the way so. we all changed the way we think about domestic violence. Yeah, because it, it just, it became a circus. Yeah. I mean, and like I said, the many times he went on Howard Stern and yeah. it just, yeah. you know, became a circus. And I'm not just, I'm not just criticizing Howard Stern. I, I'm not criticizing. I mean, that's his show. That's what he did. And True. that's what made money for him. And I mean, that you know, that, that was everybody who used to watch Howard Stern and I was one of them knew 
this is what you get from a Howard Stern show. Right. You know. Yeah, nobody made you watch him. Or no. listen to him on the radio. No, exactly, exactly. So, and it wasn't just that. John would jump at any chance. I mean, he he did a lot of things in the public eye to, you know, promote himself. Right. and loves uh, being there. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, well, absolutely. Check, check it out on Amazon Prime. Amazon Prime, and it's simply called Lorena. It's four episodes, about an hour each. So, there you awesome. go. And there's dead silence. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's it for this week, guys. What do we? What else we want to say? Follow us on follow us on all our channels: social media, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. Uh, like, yeah, we're gonna get to that TikTok video sooner or later. We promise. We've got one and a half up, and we'll figure out the rest of it yeah. soon, soon, soon. I promise. That's Give us right. Five star rating. We love those. Yes. Listen to us on well wherever you're listening right now. But there's also Spotify, Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Um, Keep on listening. Share us with somebody that you know and tell them to give us a listen to. Share us with somebody you don't know. Who knows? Yeah. Share us. Share share us with your enemies. Share us with your friends. <laughs> we don't care. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Y'all have a good week. Good night, everybody.